You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, I want to start out this morning by recapping the life and story of Joseph. So just a quick recap of the story, just from a 30,000-foot view, what happens in these 14 chapters. So in Genesis 37, when we meet our man Joseph, he's 17 years old. And if you'll remember in Genesis 37, he's loved and favored by his father, but he's hated by his brothers. And in Genesis 37, he starts to have these dreams about his family, including his older brothers, bowing down to him. And you can imagine about how that goes. It just stirred up the pot of hatred even more. And uh, by the time you finish Genesis 37, Joseph is a long way from these dreams. I think in a lot of ways, by the time you get to the end of Genesis 37, you're to think those dreams are dead. They're over, right? And so uh, by the end of Genesis 37, Joseph has walked into the premeditated murderous plots of his brother that ended by them selling him to some Ishmaelites as a slave who take him down to Egypt. And then you pick it up in in chapter uh, 39, and they get to Egypt and they sell him in Egypt to Mr. Potiphar. And Mr. Potiphar wasn't just any man in Egypt. He was a powerful man. He was among the elites of Egypt. Uh, The Bible calls him a captain of the guard. That might be equivalent to maybe something like the CIA director, FBI director. He he is a powerful man in a powerful position. And, And when you get into Genesis 39, the first few verses, you would think that, man, it seems like that the sun is finally breaking through the clouds of Joseph's life. He raises, kind of ascends to power in in Potiphar's home. He finds favor with Potiphar, and he's in charge of of Potiphar's house. And then all of a sudden, it starts to rain again in Joseph's life, doesn't it? You remember Miss Potiphar? That should stir up bad thoughts in your mind when you think about her, right? So she falsely accuses Joseph of rape, and Joseph is sent to prison. And here we go again, Genesis 39. The main point is that the Lord was with Joseph. And we see that, that Joseph finds favor with the keeper of the prison. And he finds himself in charge of the prison, just like he was in charge of Pharaoh's house. And this wasn't just any prison, no. This was the king's prison. And in the king's prison, you've got the king's prisoners. And all of a sudden, he meets two of the king's close confidants. He meets the cupbearer and the baker who both find themselves in prison, and both of them have dreams while they're in prison that Joseph was able to interpret. And these two dreams and his interpretation come true. The cupbearer is restored to the Pharaoh's side, and the baker is killed. And then you get into Genesis 41 and 42, and now we have Pharaoh who has a dream. And he doesn't know what to make of this dream. It's disturbing for him. He's got these seven plump cows that come out of the Nile. They're eating and doing great. And then all of a sudden, these seven skinny cows come out of the Nile. And those skinny cows eat the seven plump cows. I'm disturbed if I have that dream. Are you? (laughs) I don't know what to make of that dream. Pharaoh didn't either. And all of a sudden, in the midst of trying to get an interpretation, no one can interpret it. Our cupbearer remembers a man he happened to meet in prison. His name was Joseph. So Pharaoh calls Joseph and uh, brings him up out of prison. And now Joseph is standing before the most powerful person on the planet. Now, can we just take a second to acknowledge how crazy that is? He is a slave sold in Egypt, a slave that's now in prison. And that slave finds himself before the most powerful person on the planet. That's some irony, isn't it? 
So he interprets Pharaoh's dream and, and Pharaoh was so pleased with that interpretation that he makes him second command in all of Egypt. Joseph goes from a slave in prison to the prime minister of the most powerful country on the planet at that time. I mean, can you just get a sense of that? How crazy of a story that is. And so he uh, quickly begins to make preparations. In these seven years of plenty, they start to store food. And then the famine hits. And when the famine hits, Joseph is ready for it. And the people of Egypt are spared from the ravages of a, of a famine. But not only the people of Egypt. The famine was wider than just the, the land, kind of the, the place of Egypt. It also covered the place where Joseph was from. So his family felt the pinch of that famine. And when they felt that pinch, they knew that Egypt had food. And so here come his older brothers to get food, to bow down before their younger brother, our man Joseph, who finds himself second in command in Egypt. And it's interesting in, in Genesis chapter 41, 42, right in there, it's going to say that, that Joseph, when he saw his brothers before him, remembered that dream. Now, can you imagine putting two and two together there if you're Joseph? That you just watched your brothers come bow down before you and, and you just recalled this dream that God gave you three or four or five chapters ago, what turned out to be about 20 years ago now for Joseph. And so as the story unfolds, you've got this incredible moment in Genesis 45 where Joseph and his brothers are reconciled together. And then, uh, you know, as the story progresses, he invites the whole family to come to Egypt. He gives them a prime piece of real estate and everything they need to thrive and survive. And so his family is spared. They're saved. And then you get to this climactic point in, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where it's a summary statement of the entire story of the life of Joseph. The summary statement goes like this. Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, brothers who did evil, who sold me into slavery, premeditated murderous plot, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant that same evil, it, that evil, he meant it for good. That's the summary statement. And this is why we've said continually over the last couple of months that this is a story, that it's essentially a storied presentation of providence. It is putting providence in story form. It's taking a verse um, like Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It's putting a verse like that in story form. It's showing you practically what that verse looks like in life for you and I. And, and so, and we've said this repeatedly over the last few weeks, that the purpose of this story, the purpose of it, is for the people of Israel back then and the church now, for us to be able to look at God our Father and trust Him, even in the dark. To trust Him, even when we don't know what's happening. To trust Him, even when we don't know how all the whys are working out. The purpose of this story is to stir up in you and I a deep and abiding trust for God. And if you want to know one of the prime reasons we're working through uh, these chapters in the Bible, it is so that you and I and us together as a church family, it's to give the, the Spirit of God space to teach us trust by looking at the life of Joseph. That like, you know when the floor is falling out from underneath you? And that could be a job loss. That could be the loss of someone you love. That could be the loss of, of health for you. But that feeling when the floor is falling out from underneath you, the reason we're in these chapters is so that in the middle of that moment, there would be a deep and abiding trust in you and I. And uh, we've also said this several times over the last few weeks, that the hardest thing to believe about God in the midst of long seasons of suffering 
is that God is both with us and for us. So there's two hardest things to believe about God. You just look at yourself in the middle of suffering and the questions you raise to God and the problems that you have in it all find their head with those two things. Is God with me and is God for me? Now we spent a couple of weeks ago in Genesis 39 trying to nail down this idea of God being with you in suffering and with me in suffering. And we're going to spend this week and the next week talking about this idea of God being for us in suffering. Like, is God actually for us? Can we actually trust God in the midst of our suffering? I mean, can we look at God and say, God, in the midst of me, not knowing why, I trust you. That's the next two weeks. And that's going to walk us directly into this word called providence. It's a word that we, re- we introduced several weeks ago. And it's a big, big word in the Bible. And it's not, a, it's not a word that's in the Bible. It's a word to describe what we see happening from Genesis to Revelation throughout the Bible. It's a word to describe how God and the world interact with one another. Okay, th- this is the word providence. And listen, in our modern day American Christianity, most people have l- like lost this word providence from their vocabulary. Most people don't use it. And listen, it's a word worth learning and worth reinserting into the way you talk and in the way you speak, this word providence. So we're going to start here. What does providence mean? What, what is, when we say the word providence, what is that? So this is providence defined. We need to get a working definition of what we're talking about in this idea of providence. So providence defined. I'm going to let the Heidelberg Catechism, written some 400 years ago by a group of Christians, I'm going to let it start the answer to this for us. In question 27 of that catechism, it goes like this. What do you mean by the providence of God? In other words, what what does providence mean? What, What is the definition of it? And here's their answer. The providence of God is the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he upholds, keyword, and governs, keyword, heaven, earth, and all all creatures, all of his creation, so that herbs and grass and rain and drought and fruitful and barren years and meat and drink and health and sickness and riches and poverty, ye and all things come, not by chance, not by luck, not by random coincidence, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. This is providence. Providence is saying that God sustains the world. Colossians 1.16, that he's holding all things together. That the reason gravity is actually working right now, the reason you could expect it to work if you fall, is because God is holding the world together. He's sustaining it. He's sustaining your heartbeat. He's sustaining everything that we see around us. And he's governing. In other words, his hands are in the dirt and details of life. His hands are in that. He, He does not take his hands off the wheel and just let it go wherever it wishes. His hands are on the wheel directing the car directing your life, directing my life, directing history, directing the world. Every single event he's got his hands right in the middle of. This is providence. If you want maybe a a little more of a simple definition for it, you might could go this way with it. That providence is God's constant care for and his absolute rule over all his creation. And here's what he's doing with it. For his own glory and the good of his people. This is providence, that he cares for the world, that he's in control of the world, cares and is in control. And he is orchestrating everything, moving everything to accomplish much glory for him and the good of his sons and daughters. 
This is providence. This is what the, the idea of providence is. It's describing how God interacts, constant care, and his rule over his creation. Okay, so let me just tie this together here. When we ask the question, can we trust God in the midst of this season of suffering? And you just fill in the blank. I don't know what yours is, or I don't know what yours will be. But I know one thing, it's coming for all of us. It's coming for you. It's coming for me. We're, we're all going to be here one day. And we're going to ask this question. Can I trust God right now in the middle of this? And when we ask that question, the answer to it is determined by two smaller questions. So can I trust God? That big, massive question in the midst of suffering is really determined by two smaller ones. The two smaller ones go like this. The first one is a question of God's sovereignty. Can God care for us? In other words, does he have the power and the ability, the strength and the might to care for us? Can he do that? And the second one is a question of the goodness of God. Does God care for us? Does he? I mean, does he actually love us in this covenantal sort of a way where he actually cares for us? He, he loves us. He wants our good. Can God care for us? Does God care for us? Those questions determine how we answer the question, are we going to trust God in the midst of suffering? And luckily, those two questions, can God care for us? Does God care for us? Are both answered under the providence of God and in the providence of God. So let me just kind of work through this and, and tie these together. So the providence of God and the sovereignty of God. How, how do these things work themselves out? We're asking the question here, can God actually care for us? Does he have the ability and the power and the control of this world to actually do that? Providence says, yes, he does. He, he actually can do that. He can care for you. He's got the ability and the strength and the might to do that. So part of what providence means is that God is absolute in his sovereignty. This is part of what, when we say the providence of God, we are confessing and saying about God that he is absolute in his sovereignty over his creation. Absolute. So when we say sovereignty, here's what we mean when we attribute that to God. To say that God's sovereign is to say that all things, so you just fill in the blank real quick of all things, because we're, like, we're saying like everything from over here, the good things in life, to way over there and the horrific things in life. Sovereignty means that all things are under his rule and that nothing happens. These are really two big, massive key words. Nothing happens without God's direction and or permission. That nothing in life happens without God's direction and permission. That God is in control of, in, in an absolute sort of a sense, he is in control of all things. This is what it means to say that God is sovereign. And this is the picture we get of God in the scriptures. We get a picture of God from Genesis to Revelation who is in control. Things don't like happen by chance in the Bible. Things don't happen because of coincidence in the Bible. Things happen because we have a sovereign God in the Bible. This is the picture we see from the fall in Genesis 3 all the way to the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation. It is all a picture of the sovereign hand of God working all things to his ends, all things for his purposes. Now, I was going to just th throw up a list of 30 or 40 passages that deal with the sovereignty of God. But instead of doing that, I want to just read through a paragraph for you that's going to show us what all the Bible says God is sovereign over with verses 
to illustrate it. The verse is beside it. So this is what the Bible says that God is sovereign over. So, so here we go. The Bible says that God is sovereign over nature. Psalms 135. Over grass growing. You know why grass is growing in your front yard? It's not because you water it. Not ultimately. That, that plays a part. You know why ultimately it grows? Because God does it. Psalms 104. Disasters. Amos 3.6. Now that, that's an interesting category of things for God to be over. Disasters. Calamities. The work of Satan, Job 1, that, that even Satan is on God's leash, that, that even Satan is a servant of the sovereignty of God. The fall of sparrows, Matthew 10, something as, as little and insignificant as the fall of a sparrow. The Bible says God's over that. The rolling of dice, Proverbs 16, there's no such thing as coincidence. It, it, God is over all coincidence. The slaughter of his people, Psalms 44, the decisions of kings, Proverbs 21. Did you know that there's never been one decision that one king has ever made out from under the sovereignty of God? Not one. The affairs of nations, Daniel 2 and Job 12. The acts of men, Ezra 7. Even the sinful actions of men. We see in that? Not just the good acts, but the sinful acts of men. 2 Samuel 24, Genesis 45 and 50, Acts 2. The failing of sight, Exodus 4, like when our sight goes bad, that's ultimately the, sover the sovereignty of God sits over that. When and where you live, Acts 17, God is over your gifts and talents, 1 Corinthians 4, your physical appearance and personality, Psalms 139, the sickness of children, that God is over our health and our sickness, 2 Samuel 12, the loss and gain of money, 1 Samuel 2, the suffering of saints, 1 Peter 4, Hebrews 12, the hardening and softening of hearts, Exodus 4, Romans 9, Joshua 11, the completion of travel plans. You about to go travel over Thanksgiving? You get there, you know why you got there? It's under the sovereignty of God. James 4, the repentance of soul, 2 Timothy 2, the gift of faith under the sovereignty of God, Philippians 1, the pursuit of holiness is under the sovereignty of God, Philippians 2, the growth of believers, Hebrews 6, the, the giving of life and the taking of it in death, all of that under the sovereignty of God, 1 Samuel 2, and the crucifixion of his own son, all under the sovereignty of God. Here's what we're saying. There's not a molecule in the universe that finds itself out from underneath a sovereign God who controls it. Not one. There's not a cell. There's not a person. There's not a man. There's not a woman. There's not a king. There's not a nation. There is nothing in the universe that finds itself out from under the sovereignty of God. Now, let me press this one step further and say this. And that even includes your suffering and mine. That, that even our suffering sits under the sovereignty of God. Now, we see in that, that even calamities, even those things that come into your life that are devastating, even those sit under the sovereignty of God. Let me just give you a couple of illustrations to just make this clear in the Bible. A couple of passages. Lamentations chapter 3. It'll be on the screen for you. I threw this up in the NIV just because it's got a little bit more vivid language to this passage. It says it like this. Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Rhetorical question, no one. You can make all the plans you want to make. And unless the Lord comes through and does his thing, it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. And then he goes on to say this, verse 38. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High, from, from God's mouth, that both 
calamities and good things come. You see in that? It's putting under the sovereignty of God both good things and the calamities. B- both of those two things. Uh, Job 1. Be on the screen for you as well. Job chapter 1. Could there have been a worse day in the history of human life than what Job had? I mean, it was terrible, wasn't it? So this is in one day, in a short span of time, here's what happens in this one day. He gets word that a, uh, some sort of a storm, a tornado something, blew down the house where all of his kids had gathered, killed them all. He just lost his entire family, his kids, all of his children dead. He's got these raiding parties that have come down. They've killed all of his servants. They carried away all of his livestock. And to make matters worse, he gets boils that break out all over his body. This is one day in the life of our man Job. Now that's a bad day, isn't it? That makes any bad day we've had probably look okay for most of us in the room. This this is a horrible moment and a horrible set of circumstances. But I want you to listen to Job at the end of Job chapter 1 talk about this moment in his life. So, so he, he said, basically responding to his, to his wife and to God, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. And then listen to what he says here about God. The Lord gave. Now we all like that, don't we? We love that piece when the Lord gives. That's the, that's, that's the piece no one in here disagrees with. But, but listen to the second part. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So you're telling me, when, when a storm fell on his kids and killed them all, that that was God's doing? You're telling me his servants all being slaughtered, that's God's doing? You're telling me that all of his, his possessions, his livestock being stolen from him, that's God's doing? I'm not telling you that, the Bible is. This, this, is what, this is what the Bible is saying, that it was the Lord that gave and the Lord that took away. See, Job is a good theologian. He knows that, that even when Satan has a hand in something, he does not and never does have the ultimate hand in that thing. That God always has the ultimate hand in it. And just to affirm what Job is saying, in verse 22, the Bible says this, In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with any wrong. In other words, what he just said in verse 21 is true. That's what the Bible's saying. It's just affirming that the way God is thinking, or the way Job is thinking about God, the Lord gave and the Lord's taking away, that that is correct. That is how we should be thinking about God. So just to press this down, here's what Job 1 is teaching us. Job is teaching us that nothing, okay, and when I say nothing, I'm talking about over here from the pleasurable side, all the way over here to the painful side. All of that. So, so this nothing that we're talking about encompasses that whole range of things. That, that nothing passes into our lives. Or maybe you could just say it this way. Everything that passes into our life. So nothing that passes into our lives apart from it first passing through the hand of God. Now you, you see what Job's saying? That there has never been one thing that has passed into your life apart from and before it first passed through the hand of God into your life. This is what Job's saying. That God is actually sovereign over suffering. 
He's actually sovereign over health. He's actually sovereign over a tornado or a storm that kills his family. He's actually sovereign over a raiding party that kills his servants and lives. He's sovereign over all of that. That's what Job's teaching us. Now, let me clarify this when we say that God is sovereign with two statements. Statement uh, number one. To say God's sovereign over suffering and evil is different from saying that God is the author of evil and the actor of evil. Those are two separate things. So when we're saying that God is sovereign over suffering, we're not saying he is the author or the actor in our suffering. Second thing we're saying is this, just to clarify. That to say God is sovereign over suffering in no way mitigates the fact that the Bible says that you are and I am 100% responsible for our actions. Because you are and I am. So Judas is a classic illustration of this. Um, Judas is 100% responsible for his betrayal of Jesus. He did it because he wanted to do it. That's why he did it. And then the Bible also affirms this, that God's 100% sovereign over it. That, That Judas acted to fulfill the scriptures is what the Bible says. Do you see that? That he is 100% responsible and God is 100% sovereign. That God is sovereign over all of our suffering, all the evil in the world. God is sovereign over everything. Now let me throw one more passage in here. 1 Peter 4.19. We covered this a few months ago as we worked through 1 Peter, but let me just work through this one more time with you. 1 Peter 4.19 says this, Therefore, let those who suffer... Now, in 1 Peter, we're talking unjust suffering. We're talking about men and women having evil done against them, sin committed against them. That's their suffering. And and here's what uh, Peter says about it. Therefore, let those who suffer, and then these next four words are crucial, according to God's will. In other words, it's in God's will, that this is God's will. They're suffering, and, and God is saying that it's my will that you suffer. So, so let those who suffer according to God's will, in God's will, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Isn't it ironic that the Bible unashamedly puts suffering right under God's will? Not apart from, not around, not like over there, but right under God's will. Like Peter is reminding us that God is actually sovereign over suffering. Now, when, when you think about talking about God's will and suffering, I want you to have some nuance here. You need some nuance. So I want to help you with this in the way you talk about it. Because a lot of us don't talk about it in a biblical sort of a sense. So, so let me help by, by first giving an illustration from Jonathan Edwards on how God can look at the world and does look at the world. That Jonathan Edwards says that there is two ways God can look at the world. He's got a complex grid that he can see things through. And so one way we could call like a narrow, zoomed up view that God would have on the world. Another would be a zoomed out, broad view of the world. And in a narrow sense, when we're talking about God's will and suffering, in a narrow, zoomed up sense, God on the ground with us in our suffering, God would look at all suffering and say, this is not my will. I hate what I'm seeing here. This angers me, it grieves me because I hate sin and all of its effects. So in that zoomed up approach on the ground, God would say, it's never my will. But on a top level, broad view where God's looking at the entire world, where God is seeing not only the ugliness of sin and suffering, but the beauty of redemption and restoration, God can from this view say, It's exactly 
my will. That what it brings about is perfectly beautiful in the end. That it is, I am weaving together with the ugliness of sin and suffering and the beauty of redemption and restoration. I am weaving together a beautiful mosaic that I delight in and that I love and that is perfectly my will. And that's what he's talking about in 1 Peter 4. That broad view where God would look at the world and sin and suffering and say, all sin and suffering falls under my will. It wouldn't happen unless it did. That I'm sovereign over it all. So let me just press this down into one vivid illustration of this. And I've used this a couple of times. But let let me walk through it one more time. And I want you to, to picture Kevin Jones, who his mother died of cancer when he was young. Now, I want you to picture Kevin Jones asking the question. So, so you're telling me based on 1 Peter 4.19 and Job 1 and Lamentations, you're trying to tell me that, that it's God's will that my mom was cut down by cancer. That's what you're trying to tell me here. Here, here would be my response to Kevin. Kevin, no, God does not will that. And yes, Kevin, God does will that. No and yes. No in the sense that God doesn't delight in cancer. No in the sense that God hates cancer. But yes in the sense that God could have prevented the cancer but chose not to. Yes, instead of preventing it, he directed it for his higher plans and purposes. So no, God hates your mom's cancer, just like God hates betrayal and God hates murder. But yes, according to Acts 2, God does ordain the betrayal and murder of his own sinless son. Just like he ordains cancer and every other calamity. So no, God hates suffering. But yes, God ordains suffering under his sovereignty. And under God's sovereignty, the same suffering that Satan intends to decimate and destroy, God uses for higher designs. You see that? See, suffering ultimately sits under the hand of God. When you trace suffering far enough and deep enough, you never get to Satan. You always get past Satan. You always get past the evil intentions of men and women. And you always can trace that suffering back to a sovereign God. This is what the Bible is affirming. That God is sovereign over everything, including our suffering. So let me press this down and try to apply it. When you and I are in the midst of suffering, when you find yourself there and I find myself there, One of the most important things you can know about God and suffering is that God is sovereign over it. This is one of the most important things you can know about God and suffering. And it's interesting for me to listen to how most Christians respond to suffering in their own life and around the world. It's almost as if in our response to suffering, we want to let God off the hook. We want to make sure that that we don't implicate God in it. So we'll say statements like this. There is no way in any way, shape, or form God had anything to do with that. And can I just tell you, if you say that, you are saying something contrary to what the Bible teaches. Like you're, You're saying, if you say that, you are saying that at the cost of God's sovereignty. So just to say this on a positive way, the Bible is saying that God does have something to do with suffering around the world. God does, he's sovereign over it. This is what it means to be sovereign. 
And, and listen, I, I think the intentions in that moment are good. We're actually trying to help people who are in the midst of it and struggling with sin and suffering. We're trying to help them by not implicating God. But here's the problem. It doesn't help them. It actually hurts them. See, suffering is not made more sufferable by thinking that God had nothing to do with it. Suffering is made sufferable by knowing God had everything ultimately to do with it. That's what makes it sufferable. To know that we have a God who directs it all for higher designs. To know that we have a God who is sovereign over it, in control of all of it. That's what makes suffering sufferable. See, if, if, if we decide that there is a molecule in the universe or an event of suffering in our life or in the world that is out from under the sovereignty of God, then here's the problem with that. God cannot care for us in suffering. The only way God can care for you in suffering and me in suffering is for him to actually be sovereign over it. The only way that God can be trustworthy in the midst of your suffering, to be a comfort to you in the midst of your suffering, is for the God of the Bible to be sovereign over all of our suffering. That's the only way. And here's what providence says for us, that God is over our suffering. And listen, we need to know that. If you're in the middle of suffering right now, there is going to be a moment where you have got to get driven, just imprinted upon the deepest part of your soul that I have a God who is over it all. I have a God who is ordaining and orchestrating it all. Listen to one author as he describes the need for that in the midst of suffering and this want of most Christians to try to not implicate God, to get God off the hook. He says it like this. Pain and loss are bitter providences. But oh, the folly of trying, to, of trying to lighten the ship of suffering by throwing God's governance or his sovereignty or his providence, by, by throwing God's governance overboard. The very thing the tilting ship needs in the storm is the ballast of God's good sovereignty. You see in that? This is the thing the ship needs to sustain itself in suffering is the ballast of God's sovereignty, not the unburdening of this deep and precious truth. And I love this last statement. God's sovereignty becomes the pillow that every weary saint can lie down on. It actually becomes a comfort for us to know that God's in control. This isn't, this isn't Satan in control of my life and how things turn out. This is God who is ultimately in control orchestrating and ordaining everything. And this truth of God's sovereignty is telling us this, that in the midst of suffering, God can care for you. He has the ability, the strength, and the might to do it. So that's sovereignty and providence. Can God care for us? Yes, he can. Now here comes the second question. This is providence and the goodness of God. So we've got the idea of God can care for us, but here's the, the bigger question. Is does God care for us? I mean, does he actually love us? Does he have a heart that is bent around us? Is he actually working for our good in the midst of it? That's the question. And Providence says, yes, he is. And yes, he does, that God actually loves you. So this is what Providence is teaching us. Not just that God's in control of the world, but that God actually does care for you and me. So the question is, how do we know that? In a word, we know that because of the gospel. That's why. 
We know God's love toward us because he sent his son for us. You see that? Here's how you know that God loves you. Here's how you know about God's love toward you. It's because he loved you enough to send his son for you. That's how we know it. Okay, this is what 1 John 4 teaches. It's going to be on the screen for you. 1 John 4, 9 says this. In this, the love of God was made manifest, or it was shown. The love of God was shown, made manifest among us. Here's how it was shown. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And in, the, and in this is love. Like in this act of God sending his son to the world, in that is love. Not that we have loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now that's a big word that conveys this big reality. That on the cross, propitiation means on the cross, Jesus drank every bit of God's wrath that you and I deserve. That he took every bit of God's fury over your sin and my sin. He drank it to the last drop. That Jesus took every punch of the wrath of God so that you and I as God's sons and daughters would have to take no punch from God. That's what propitiation means. If we want to see a picture of God's love for us, then we need to get in our mind God sending his son for us. We've got, to get, we've got to start to see Jesus. We've got to start to see the cross. We've got to start to see that God sent his one and only son to live a perfect life in place of your very imperfect life. Do you know that? Like all of your failures, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the commands of God in your place. That, that on the cross, God packaged up every sin in the world. Packaged it all up. Your sin, my sin. He packaged it, all of it, and poured it out on Jesus on the cross rose him again from the dead on the third day. This is what we've got to see. If you want the most convincing proof that God loves you, it is that he sent his son for you to alleviate your greatest need. I love how Jerry Bridges puts it. Calvary or the cross is the one objective, absolute, irrefutable proof of God's love for us. You know that? It is the objective, irrefutable proof that God loves his sons and daughters. He would love them so much that he would slaughter his own son for them. That's how much. And there is this picture of this in the, the, well, when you're thinking gospel, it's not only that God loves you enough to to save you from your sin, but but here's another huge reality of the gospel, is he loves you enough to adopt you into his family. So this is, this is one of the great implications of the gospel is that in Jesus and because of Jesus that you are now a son or daughter of God when you put your faith in Jesus. That you're a son or daughter of God. That he's adopted you into the family according to Galatians 4 and Romans 8. That God would actually look at you if, if you're in Christ like he would a son, like he would a daughter. Now just let that settle over your soul for a second. That if you're in Christ in this room right now, that God looks at you like a son or a daughter. That's the sort of affection he has for you, the sort of love he has for you. There's this beautiful picture in uh, Isaiah chapter 49 of this fatherly love of God, this familial love of God for his sons and daughters. In Genesis 49 verse 14, it should be on the screen for you. 
um, the people of Israel really believe that God has forsaken them in the midst of their struggles and in the midst of their suffering. That they really believe that God's forsaken them. So they cry out to God and they say this. But, but Zion said, the people of Israel said, the Lord has forsaken me. My God has forgotten me. He has turned his back on us. You ever felt that way in the midst of suffering? You ever felt like that, that God's turned his back on you? That God is no longer there. He, he's no longer working for you. He no longer loves you, cares for you. Now I want you to listen to God's response to the people of Israel as they have this feeling of God has forsaken us. He's turned his back on us. We just see this vivid response. One commentator says this is the most vivid picture of the love of God in the Old Testament. Here's what he says. Response, God says this in verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. God uses the tightest form of human love, a mother with a little baby. Now, if you're smart and you know anything about life, you know this. You get in between a mom and her little baby and you die, right? We, we know that. Because th there is a tightness to that love. There is a, like a ferocious want to protect, to provide for, to care for that little baby. Now that exists in the heart of a mom. But here's the truth. Even, even in that, what should be the purest form of like lo human love for another human being. Even in that, there, there's some moms who their own self-centeredness gets before their love for their kid, isn't there? That, that happens. Just read the newspaper. You'll see it. There are times that that happens. And here's what God's saying. The reason this passage is in the Bible is to give you a faint picture, just, just a shadow of God's love for you in Jesus. It, it's meant to give you proof of and evidence of how God feels about you. This passage is meant to convince you that God actually loves you. Like not, not just like, uh, how, how a mother would, would love a, a baby, but like how a perfect mother or a perfect father would love their baby, like that. It's supposed to show you not just that God will not stop loving you, but that he can't stop loving you. That's what it's meant to show you and I. It's supposed to walk us into this idea that God's a father to us, and that he loved us like a perfect father. Now, it's only in that sense and in light of that, God loves us like he loves a son or a daughter, like he's a father to us. It's only in that context that verses like Romans 8, 28 even make sense. It's only when we see that God loves us like a son and a daughter that when he says, everything that comes into your life, I'll, I'll work it for the good. I am determined that, that everything that comes into your life, that I will turn it for the good, for those who love me and are called according to my purpose, that all things will work itself out that way. That only makes sense when you believe God is a father for you that actually loves you and cares for you. I told y'all a couple of weeks ago that I had to take Hannah to the hospital when she was uh, two years old, fell in the garage. I don't know if you remember the story. Fell in the garage, gash on her forehead. And I told y'all about the horrific experience of having to hold her down as they jab a needle into her forehead, this huge gash in her forehead, to deaden the skin and then to stitch it up. Now, I, I want you just to think for a second here. If you're a dad in the room, what is it that would cause you to hold your girl down, your, your son down, 
so that someone could jab a needle into them? What, what would cause you to do that? For, for their good. Y- yeah. The, the only way you're ever going to do that. Like, let, let, me, let me just turn it around this way. You come to Hannah today with a needle in your hand and say, hey, I'm going to jab her in the forehead. We're going to fight before you jab her in the forehead, right? That isn't just going to go down. But now picture this. What would cause you to actually hold your daughter or son down while they're suffering and getting a needle jabbed into it? The only way you would ever do that if you're a father who loves your son or daughter is for you to be absolutely convinced that the payoff is worth the pain. That's the only reason. And see, this is the picture of God we have in in Romans 8, 28 and throughout the story of Joseph. We have got a God who is a father to us, who promises us in Romans 8, 28, that I will never hold you down in suffering unless the payoff is greater than the pain. And see, when we start to see God as father, you know what starts to diminish? When we start to see God as father, we don't have to search for all the answers why in suffering. And here's why. Because we know the God as Father who knows all the reasons why. See, that's what we have to know in the midst of suffering. It's not the reason why are cold comfort for you and I. What we have to know in the, in the midst of suffering is God as Father and trust that that God as Father actually knows why. That he loves us. That's what we've got to believe and know. And here's what Providence is teaching us. God actually loves you like there is no one else to love on the planet. That's how God loves you. In the midst of your suffering, that's how God loves you. When the floor falls out from underneath you, God loves you like there's no one else to love on the planet. Okay, we'll land the plane with this. What should this, like awareness of the providence of God, what should it produce in us? Like what does providence produce? See, the goal is not to fill your head with more information. That is not the end game here. The end game is to try to answer the question, what should knowing that God is, that God can care for us and that he does care for us, that he's actually sovereign over suffering and good in the midst of our suffering, what should that produce in the life of a son or daughter of God? That's the question. The Heidelberg Catechism answers that question like this. This is question 28, right after the definition of providence. It asks this question and answers it. What advantage is it to know, or what advantage is it to us to know that God has created and by his providence does still uphold all things? So what advantage is it for you to know that and for me to know that? Here's the end game. It's not just so you'll know it, just to give away the answer. It's not just so you'll have some random facts in your head about God and suffering. Here's the purpose. The answer, that we may be patient in adversity. You want some of that? See, the providence of God is what gives us that. That we may be patient in adversity, that we may be thankful in prosperity, and that in all things which may hereafter befall us, we place our, I love this this phrase, our firm trust in our faithful God and Father that nothing shall separate us from his love, since all creatures are so in his hand, and without his will they cannot so much as move. It should produce in us a deep and abiding trust. That's what it should produce. 
Now, let's go to Genesis 45, and I just want to show you this in the story of Joseph, and we'll be done. Genesis 45. In verse 4 of Genesis 45, it says this. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you, your, your decision... Your action, evil action, whom you sold into Egypt. Joseph is saying, you are 100% responsible for what you did. And it was evil what you did, that you sent me to Egypt. But then he goes on, verse 5. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. But it was... Just a second ago in verse 4, it's you did it, brothers. But now all of a sudden it's, well, hold on, but God did it. So, so is it them or is it God? Like, who's doing it? And Joseph is saying, ultimately, sin and suffering never come about because of people. Sin and suffering never come about ultimately because of Satan. It always comes from the hand of God. Nothing passes into our life apart from passing through the hand of God. So he goes on, and God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 6, for the famine has, has, uh, has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me. God did this. God, I mean, the, the whole selling into slavery, your premeditated plot, falsely accused. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me father to Pharaoh and lord of all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Do you see what Joseph is affirming? He is affirming the providence of God, that God can care for us because he's sovereign and God does care for us because he's good. He's affirming that, that even in the evil actions of his brothers, that God was sovereign over that, that he overruled their evil intentions in the act to bring about his higher designs through the act. You see that? This is what Joseph knows. This is what he's affirming, that God can and God does care for us, that God is providential, that God is in control of all things and orchestrating all things for our good. This is why the summary statement of the entire story in Genesis 50 verse 20 says this. As for you, brothers, you meant evil. You sold me into slavery. You wanted the dream to die. That's what you wanted. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph knew his brothers wanted the dreams dead. But God, through their evil actions, actually brought the dreams to life. Joseph knew that God was providentially in control of his whole thing. Now, I want you to think about what that produced in Joseph. Think about what that produced. It's interesting reading through these 14 chapters. You know what you never see in the story? You never see a moment where Joseph crawls over up in a corner and pouts. Isn't that crazy? I would be in a corner pouting. That's where I would be. You never see that in Joseph. You, you don't see this want for revenge in Joseph. Isn't that amazing? He's got his brothers over the barrel and he does not pull the trigger. He's falsely accused. He doesn't, he doesn't revolt against God. 
He doesn't accuse God. Isn't it amazing that you never see any of those things happen? He sits in a prison for at least two years, maybe as many as four, five, six, seven years, falsely accused, and he is patient in the midst of that. Do you know what, you know what it produced in the life of Joseph throughout this story? The providence of God. You know what it produced? A deep and abiding trust in God. That's what it produced. That, that played itself out in the, just the daily grind of Joseph's life. Like on Monday when life fell apart. When Tuesday he got fired. When you just, ne- it played itself out. That trust of God played itself out in the daily grind of his life. This is what providence produces in you and I. When the floor falls out from underneath us, a deep and abiding trust. So uh, two weeks ago, we uh, ran through Genesis chapter 38 and this idea of God being with us. Um, the, the Tuesday night after that Sunday, I had one of the most horrific dreams I've had that I can remember. And so that, that night I dream and uh, I'm swimming with my kids. So I've got Caleb and Hannah, we're in a lake and we're, we're jumping up on a dock. And I'm trying to kind of get them out of the water, pushing them up on the dock, when all of a sudden I see Eva on another part of the dock, our little 16-month-old. And uh, I'm just now pushing Caleb up onto the dock, trying to get out myself when I see Eva fall in. And uh, so I, I jump up onto the dock, I run over, I dive in to try to save Eva, and I can't find her. And uh, man, I dreamed, and it was just as vivid as vivid can be, that she drowned in that lake with me searching for her. I wake up on Wednesday morning, and I'm on my way to work, where that dream, I'd forgotten about that, that dream reappeared. And it was as vivid as if it had just happened. It's what it felt like to me. And it was so interesting just to watch um, what was going on inside of me in that moment. This was just after we'd prayed that God is with you, or, you know, taught through God is with you in suffering. And I meant stirred up in me was this revolt against God, that God, if that happened, I don't know, I don't know that I could love you. I don't know that I'd want to be around you. I know I couldn't trust you. I know I'd be bitter against you. Now, I just had, I mean, the, these thoughts just flood through me. And I, for, for the next... Two and a half days, man, I'm telling you, it was like war inside of me as I would think about that imagery of, of my little girl drowning, me trying to save her, can't find her, and where is God, what's God doing in the midst of all of that? And so that Friday, I have to write a sermon. <laughs> yeah, you put yourself in those shoes. And so I'm at Panera Bread trying to write a sermon, and my normal kind of MO is just to throw some uh, earbuds in. And I have just a playlist of some hymns that I really enjoy. And so I've got some hymns rolling. And all of a sudden, the song, How Deep the Father's Love for, for Us, starts playing. And I want, I want to read for you. I mean, this is just in the midst of agonizing doubt against God, right? I, I want to read these words for you. First, first lines out of How Deep the Father's Love for Us goes like this. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. I mean, this next line was the line that, that for me was the breakthrough moment into all of that doubt, out of all of that doubt. How vast beyond all measure that he, God, 
should give his only son to make a wretch like me, like you, like us, to make a wretch his treasure. Man, and I'm, I'm in the middle of Panera. I'm just in pieces over there. I don't even know what people are thinking as they look over there. I'm just in pieces as I'm thinking about, you, you know how I would know that God would love me even in the midst of that? It's because his son is already drowned in suffering. That's how. I mean, I pray that for you. I pray it for me. That when those moments in our life come, that there would be this deep and abiding sense of, I can trust God and I can trust God because he can care for me and the gospel proves that he does. Amen? Let's pray together. I'm going to give you a second to allow the Spirit of God just to press that upon you this morning. And, and I, I, you know, before we, before we start singing, I just want to make this one part clear in the room. That if you're kicking the tires on this whole Jesus thing, if there's never been a moment where you've stepped across the line of faith, held up your life and said, God, save me. I need you. Save me, God. If there's never been that moment then I don't want you to be confused in what I'm saying this morning. What I'm saying this morning about the providence of God, of God not only having the ability to care for us, but that God actually does care for us, that is directed to sons and daughters of God. That that is directed to those men and women who have entered a covenant relationship with God, who, who God has saved. That, that is who that is directed to. Romans eight twenty eight. All things work for the good of those who love God, who are in the family of God. And so if this morning, if you want the providence of God to work for you, his control over all things working for your good, if you want that, here's, here's the first step in that, is you've got to become a, a, a part of the family of God. You've got to hold up your life and say, God, save me. And here's the great news of the gospel. He will save you today and adopt you into his family. Today, he'll do that. And for the rest of us in the room, if you are a Christian, then can I just remind you this morning, can I just allow the story of Joseph to remind you, God can care for you, and the gospel is irrefutable proof that God does care for you. So God, we love you. God, we're thankful for Jesus, and we're thankful for all that Jesus has secured for us on the cross. How he has secured a love from you to us that can't stop. And God, I pray for my friends in the room this morning, for my own heart, that I would feel that and that it would produce in us an abiding trust. It's in your good name. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.